Thank you very much, Bobby. You do a great job keeping everything organized and going. We are grateful for you. All right, children can be dismissed for nursery. And the rest of you can open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We are at the penultimate sermon of Ecclesiastes. Not quite the ultimate, not quite the final. Next week, Lord willing, will be the final sermon, the last sermon wrapping things up. This week we're going to look at verses, verse 7 in chapter 11, which we covered 7 and 8 a little bit two weeks ago, but we're going to start there again, all the way through verse 8. And I changed the title a little bit. You'll, you'll understand later that, it, that what the title is is a pretty important part of the sermon. But the series of this sermon has been called A Life Well Lived, and that is the title of this, this sermon as well, A Life Well Lived. Let's follow along as I read verse 7 through chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 11, verse 7 through 12, 8. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But now, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. The Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Let's pray. God, we come now again to your word. We have read it. And now we ask that you would help us to understand it. Just as your Spirit inspired these words to be written. Just as your Spirit has moved through the ages to protect and to keep and to guard your word. Just as your spirit applied that word to our hearts when we first believed and planted the seed within us, we pray that that seed would continue to grow this morning through the work of your spirit here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, perhaps by this point in our study of Ecclesiastes, you might be feeling a little bit like the older gentleman who was driving down the interstate one day when he received a panicked call from his wife. She said, Honey, 
Be careful out there. I just saw on the news that there's someone driving the wrong way down the highway. Just as panicked, her husband replied, That's not the half of it. It's not one car. There's hundreds of them. The preacher's message to us from the beginning has been that on the highway of this world, most people, they're going the wrong direction. In their pursuit of meaning in life, they are ending up in a place he describes over and over again as vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And he says, I know this because I've been there. Those words in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 8 are actually the last words that are given to us from the lips of the preacher of this book. If you read verse 9, you notice the preacher is referred to in the third person. This is his closing statement in verse 8. We return to the narrator, which we last left in verse 1 of chapter 1. And we see that his closing statement is really the same as his opening statement. It took 12 chapters, but he's ended up in the same place. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. His last words are the same as his first. That life under the sun and a life filled with the pursuit of those things under the sun is vain. Or the NIV says, meaningless. It's empty. Hebel is the word. It's smoke. It's a mist. It's, it's something you try to grab a hold of, but it slips between your fingers. It's here one minute and gone the next. Futile. But yet as we look around our world today, we realize that not many are heeding his message. Everyone is chasing the very things that the preacher has warned us against throughout his message. We look around the world today and we look at people looking to wealth, thinking that a life of substance might be found there. If I just have a little more, the famous words of John Rockefeller. They fill their hours with pleasure, thinking that that's where ultimate happiness is to be found. They, they've lost themselves in their careers, believing the promise that it will be worth it all in the end. And all of them, all of them end up where the preacher tells them they will end up. Empty. The world is a highway, the preacher says, full of people that are headed the wrong direction. And now he tells us, many young people are getting on the, egg, the entrance ramp of that highway every day. You see, that's who our verses this morning are addressed to. They are addressed to young people. In verse 9 and 10, you see youth or young man, that, that, that phrase used three different times. And in chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, we see it again. Remember your creator in your youth. This is who the preacher's closing arguments are to. I was in a conversation last night and somebody was asking, you know, what stage of life did, did, did Solomon, who many think wrote this, I don't, think, if you remember back to the beginning, I'm not convinced this is Solomon, but but what stage did he write this? Many think this was him as an old man looking back, and one of his last things he says is, young people, do not make the mistake that I have made. Don't buy what the world is selling. Don't waste the prime of your years chasing empty promises. There is another way. There is a better way. So how do we travel this better way? How do we go upstream against the flow of traffic in this world? How do we find this life well lived under the sun? Well, he tells us this in his closing passage by giving us three commands. Three imperatives that are found in our verses. And they all start with the letter R. Which perhaps the preacher of Ecclesiastes was a good Baptist preacher. 
He knew how to alliterate. The first, and you might want to underline these. If you underline things in your Bible, you might want to underline them because as we go through them, you'll, you'll see them jump out to you as themes in these verses. And the first thing, the first way to live a well-lived life under the sun is to be people that rejoice. We see that command in verse 8 and 9. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice, O young men, in your youth. First thing we need to do is rejoice. The second thing is that we need to be able to remove some things from our lives. Remove a few things. And we'll get into what those are later. And then the third is remember. Remember, we, we see that in chapter 12, the very first word in the, the ESV and I, in the New Living Translation, over and over and over again, this, this phrase, this word remember is used. Remember, remember, remember. How do we live a life well lived under the sun? Rejoice, remove, remember. These three pillars must be in our lives. These must be the ballast in our ships that, that, that keeps us from being tossed and turned, tossed and turned in the storms of life as we travel this world. We need to learn to rejoice. We need to be quick to remove and we must always remember. So first, what does he mean by rejoice? And the heading I gave to this first point is this. Rejoice all the days of your life. Rejoice all the days of your life under the sun. Notice in verse 8 again, he refers to someone who has lived many years. They're an, an older person. And he says to this older person, you need to learn to rejoice in, in all the years that God gives you under the sun. But then in verse 9, he, he directs his, his admonishment to a young person. He says to someone who is youth, who is young, rejoice in your youth. So whether young or old, and, and anywhere you want to label yourself in between those two, the way to live a well-lived life under the sun is to live those days rejoicing. Now, rejoice or rejoicing, it's kind of one of those words we've allowed as Christians to become a part of our vocabulary that we're familiar with. We sang it this morning. We talk about rejoicing. It's part of our vocabulary, but it's one we kind of leave to the side and don't actually apply to our lives. I've said before, sometimes we take the, the song we learned as a child a little too seriously. You know how those songs get stuck in our heads? Well, this song got stuck in our hearts. The song that says, we've got the joy, joy, joy. And people look at us and say, well, where? We say, oh, well, down in our hearts. Way, way down in our hearts. We read rejoice. We don't actually do much rejoicing. Maybe it would be better if we read verse 9 in the NIV, which says, you who are young, be happy while you are young. We know what that word means. And we kind of think, well, that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. But over and over again, the Bible calls us to be a people who are happy. You who are young, be happy while you are young. In verse 8, the older ones don't get out of this one. He says, enjoy those years. This is how the preacher calls us to live, to be people who are happily enjoying life. And in verse 7, he, he tells us why. And he says, because life with all its complications, with all its difficulties, with all its hardships, life is good. Life, light is sweet, which light means life. It refers to, to being alive. And it pleases the eye to see the sun. 
Two words that he uses. In the ESV, it's pleases. and other translations, it's good. And that word good is as general a term as we use the word good. We refer to everything as, how are you doing? It's, it's, I'm good. It's a general term. But the word sweet is a little more descriptive. It refers to something that pleases the senses. And it's a metaphor for taste. And to taste something. You know, if you have a piece of fruit on the on the table, if you really want to experience that fruit, you need to taste it. And that's what it means. It means the full experience of something. Psalm 34, the psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Calling us to the full experience of God. Not to just sit back in the back and watch from a distance, but taste and see that the Lord is good. You will find Him to be good. And the preacher says the same is true of life, that despite its hardships, it is good to taste of life and the fullness of life. As Christians, the message of Ecclesiastes reminds us that we of all people as Christians should be happy. Because we have found the source of real happiness. We've seen the emptiness of all the things the world runs after. That means that we have and know the thing that is truly life-giving. Listen to what Moses says to the people of Deuteronomy as they enter into the promised land. He, He looks at them and he says, Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help. The sword of your triumph. He looks at Israel and says, How happy are you as a people who know the Lord, who are saved by the Lord. Should that not even be more true of us who live on this side of the cross? We've seen the salvation that the Lord has accomplished for us. We have seen how He has been our shield of help and sword of triumph. Happy are you, O Christian. I mentioned before that Sinclair Ferguson closes many of his sermons by saying, what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. Do we believe that? If so, then live like it. Be happy and enjoy life. Knowing, verse 8 reminds us, that there will be many days of darkness. If you live a long life, you will experience many difficult days. Verse 9 adds another caveat, and that is to not forget that one day, as in your pursuit of happiness and the way that you live life to the full, to the, to the, to the fullest, don't forget that you will be called into account for how you live your life. You will one day be brought before God and had to give an account. That phrase, judgment, at the end of verse 9, could really be, really have the definite article in front of it. It could be the judgment. Reminding us that in our pursuit of happiness, we need to do so by walking in holiness. But let us not forget, as we tend to forget as Christians, I think. Happiness and holiness are not opposites. Happiness and holiness are not mutually exclusive. In fact, God has given us His commands of holiness for our good. For our happiness. Deuteronomy again tells us this. Observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Now, if you're reading your Bible and you get to this part, you have just read Leviticus. You've just read Exodus. You've just read the beginning of Deuteronomy. You've read a lot of commands and decrees. And now we're reminded these are for your own 
good? Parents, do we teach our kids the goodness of God's laws and His commands? Do we teach our kids not just the do's and don'ts, but the why's? Do we, do we teach them how following God's commands keeps us from bringing unnecessary trouble into our lives? Do we teach them how following God's law brings blessing and great peace to our lives? That the way to truly enjoy life and to be happy in this life under the sun isn't to turn from God's laws and to turn to our desires. We've seen in Ecclesiastes where our desires go. It's not to turn from those, turn from God's law, but to follow it wholeheartedly. That is where we will find true happiness in life and joy. Rejoice in this life under the sun. Knowing there will be hardships. Knowing you will have to give an account one day for your actions. But still rejoice. Second, he tells us to remove some things. He says if you want to live a life full of, of, of meaning and happiness and joy, there's some things you need to remove from your life. I'll use the NIV's wording here for the title. Remove anxiety and trouble from your life. The SV puts it like this. Remove vexation. We've heard that word often in Ecclesiastes. It's still not a word that we're very familiar with. But Michael Eaton defines uh, vexation as that which angers, grieves, or irritates. Have any of you ever been vexed? But, but notice what the preacher is saying there in verse 10. Maybe more importantly, notice what he's not saying. The preacher is not saying that you will be able to make it through life without having anything that angers, grieves, or irritates. You can. He, he already said there's going to be hard days. But what he says is, do not let them into your heart. For the cliche, it's not the water outside of the boat that's a problem. The problem becomes when the water gets inside of the boat. Do not let vexation seep into your heart. Like the way the NIV uses this. Instead of remove, it says banish. You know, every once in a while, I'll go down our hallway where the kids' bedrooms are and I'll see a sign on one of the doors. Keep out. No boys allowed. Or... No girls may enter. The preacher says, put a sign over your heart. No anxiety may enter here. Proverbs reminds us that our hearts affect everything that we do. So we have to, above everything else we do, guard your heart. I think the ESV uses the word vigilance. With vigilance, guard your heart. Always be attentive to your heart seen the tomb of the unknown soldier, how they're always at attention. They're always guarding the tomb. There's never a day off. Just have that attitude with your heart. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The opening chapters of Proverbs are a father speaking to a son, and that's who this command in Ecclesiastes is addressed to. It's addressed to a young person. And how important it is for young people to guard their hearts. To not allow roots of bitterness and anger, of grief and irritation 
to take hold. The NIV uses the word cast to refer to what we are to do with the the next thing he addresses. But I like that word cast here with thinking about the, the vexations that want to seep into our heart. First Peter reminds us of, of how we keep this from happening, and that is that we cast all of our anxieties, cast all of your vexations, cast them all on God because He cares for you. But how, how do you keep anxiety from seeping into your heart? Peter says as soon as it hits the surface of your life, get rid of it. Take it to the Lord. Remove it. The word cast implies effort. It implies work. It does not naturally happen. If if you let the vexations of this world, if you let the grief, the anger, the irritation, and there's a lot of those going on right now. If you spend much time on social media, if you spend much time watching the news, there's a whole lot of things that will get you vexed really quick. And if you just let it sit there and stay there, it is going to begin to seep into your heart. Get rid of it. Remove it. Philippians tells us even further how we should do this, where he says, do not be anxious about anything. Here's how we cast it on the Lord. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Anytime you feel a moment, a temptation to be vexed, see that as an alarm sounding. It's time to pray. It's time to cast my anxieties on the Lord. Preacher says this is how to travel through life. Get rid of your irritations. Get rid of your griefs before they reach your heart. And then he says in verse, the rest of verse 10, put away trouble from your body. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and dawn of life are vanity. Now we, we tend to try to spiritualize everything, especially in, in, in when we're reading books like Ecclesiastes, which has a mixture. We're going to see a poem at the end of these verses. And we, we tend to try to spiritualize everything. But I think we should just take this on surface level. In verse 10, what the preacher is admonishing young people to do is to take care of both your inner selves, which is your heart, and your outer selves, which is your bodies. Don't do things in your youth that you will regret the rest of your life. Because the years of your youth are fleeting. That's the best way to translate vanity in that sense. It's fleeting. It's quickly gone. The years of your youth will quickly be behind you. So enjoy them. To some extent, live it up. Do things that you will not be able to do later on in life down the road. But do not forget that the way you spend those years will affect the way you enjoy your later years. Charles Spurgeon says this, Youthful sins lay a foundation for aged sorrows. Youthful sins lay a foundation for aged sorrows. You know, sometimes we hear these testimonies of people who had an incredible experience coming out of such a hard and difficult background. And we love those stories. But every single one of those who shares those stories will tell you, young people, the best thing that you can have is, quote-unquote, a boring testimony. The best thing you can do is spare yourself from the years of hurt and pain and destruction and ruin that you bring on your life. Don't wait. 
Warren Worsby says this. I love this, the way he ends this. He says, young people who take care of their body, their minds and their bodies, avoiding the destruction, destructive sins of the flesh and build good habits of health and holiness, have a better chance for happy adult years than those who sow their wild oats and pray for crop failure. I, I like that. Sometimes we look at youth and we say, oh, they're just sowing their wild oats. But we forget what you reap, what you sow, you will reap. If you sow wild oats, you're going to reap things down the road you wish you didn't have. And again, we want to spiritualize everything, and maybe that those quotes are, are leading us towards that. But again, there's the practical advice that the preacher gives us as an older person looking back to young people, and he says, take care of your bodies. Take care of your bodies while at a young age so that you're not racked with pain and discomfort later on. Of course, sometimes... That, that come, that, that comes, that pain and discomfort, it comes even if we did take care of our bodies. But if we can avoid it, we should. The New Testament says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies matter. They're, they, they're, they aren't insignificant. And the goal of our bodies is that we should use them and care for them in such a way that brings the most honor and glory to God. Some of those who have been great heroes of the faith from the past have overlooked this. They did not care for their bodies. They worked themselves ragged. And because of that, they died very young. Charles Spurgeon, you saw a quote from him, is, is one of those. And he left an incredible legacy for us. But if he had cared for his body a little more, he might have had many more years of faithful ministry. It's not wrong to care for your body. It's not wrong to have a surgery, surgery that relieves pain from your life. It's not wrong to take vacations and breaks so that you don't get burnt out. It's not wrong to take time to exercise and keep your body in shape. In fact, the preacher says, it's right. Do it. Not only so that you might be more useful for God, we always want to be pragmatic, but also simply so you can enjoy life in this world under the sun. God does not want you to go through life miserable. So if you have the opportunity... Cast off pain from your body and remove anxiety from your heart. Rejoice, remove, and then the third, remember. Remember, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And again, he writes this command particularly to young people. And the word here, remember, does not mean to, to remember something you forgot or, or even simply to give an intellectual nod to something. But this word remember, it means to have the knowledge of God, particularly the knowledge of God as creator, as the foundation of your life. Craig Bartholomew says this, Here remember means much more than intellectual acknowledgement of God as creator. It refers to allowing the notion of God as creator to shape your life and the way that you handle life's enigmas now. Enigmas is the word that Bartholomew uses, uses throughout his commentary to, to, to translate hevel, which is vanity. How do you navigate the vanities and the meaninglessness of this world? Have the knowledge that God is creator as the foundation of your life. And remembering that God is creator also reminds us of something else. Something about ourselves, and that is that we are created. We are created. This is what has gone wrong in the earlier pursuits of the preacher. He tried to take the place of God as creator. 
He tried to create his own happiness and significance. Over and over again in the opening chapters, we hear the preacher say this, I did this and I did that. I built this and I accomplished that. I knew this and I acquired that. I pursued this and I, I, I. And it led him to misery. But the preacher says that when you know that God is creator, when you put into the, the base of your life that, that illustration from last week, the knowledge that God is creator, and that you are creature, that you are the created one, things begin to fall into place. You know, of all the travesties that are taking place in our culture, perhaps the greatest and the, the root of all these travesties is this very mistake. We have assumed the role of creator. Unlike any other time in history, I know you can go back and look at all these other places, but there has never been a culture in a world that has been as secular and humanistic as our culture is. That has completely removed the idea of, a, of divinity. We are creator. We get to define who we are. We get to define our gender, and it might change from one day to the next. We get to define what marriage is. We get to define what love is. We get to define what truth is. We get to define what is right and wrong. We have embraced as our motto here in America, Romans one twenty one. For all they did, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we are experiencing the abandoning wrath of God in our culture. You want to know why everything is confusing? You want to know why everything is so dark? This is why. We have assumed the place of creator in our culture and in our country. The first five words of the Bible must be the foundation for our lives. Sometimes we say the first four. You get the first four right, you're, you're going to get the rest right. But add the fifth. In the beginning, God created. To know this to be true, that God is the creator, that means that He is the author and He is the one who is in control. And He has the final word and we are created. The preacher tells us that we need to know this before something. And that something is getting old. Remember Him, He says, before you get old. This again is the tragedy that we're seeing in our young people. Allowing them to forget. Remember Him before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The evil days and the days when... when, when the days that you find no pleasure in refers to the days when old age makes life difficult. The preacher says, whatever you do, do not wait until then to remember your Creator. Have this as the bedrock of your life from your youth. And the statistics reveal what the preacher says is true. That if you do not remember your Creator in your youth before the evil days come, you will not remember him at all. According to a 2004 Barna study, 76% of Americans who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before reaching the age of 21 years old. Just to break that down, 64% of those make a commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. 
43%, so this is included in that 63%, you're going to add them up and say, wait a second, that's more than 100. 43% of those 64%, or 43% of of people do so before the age of 13, and, and 13% between the ages of 18 and 21. Another study, this time by the National Association of Evangelicals, just to show you a chart. I don't know if you can read that or not. It's very blurry. The real small thing is, is zero to three. Obviously, there's not much uh, uh, conversions that take place in that stage. But the big one is four to 14. 60, 63%. 15 to 29 is 34%. 30 plus, over the age of 30, only 2% of people who become Christians become Christians after the age of 30. We should probably put a sign-up sheet back there, right, Bobby? We, we should have a big old list of people ready. We'd love to have a youth program at our church, in addition to Sunday school. And you can see the importance of it, the weight of it. But we, we need someone to lead it. I know the demographics of our church are part of the reason we struggle to fill that gap. But if we really believe what the preacher is telling us, and this is an indictment on on me, first and foremost, if we believe what the preacher is telling us of Ecclesiastes, that it's vital to remember the Creator in your youth, then we should be able to overcome any obstacles that keep us from making sure our youth, and we do a great job, we praise the Sunday school teachers, we do a great job in that. We should do what we can to make re- making sure the foundation in their life is there. Based off of the research, research, Barna Research Group says this, Families, churches, and parachurch ministries must recognize the primary window of opportunity for effectively reaching people with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is during the preteen years. It is during those years that people develop their frames of reference for the remainder of their lives, especially theologically and morally. Consistently explaining and modeling truth principles for young people is the most critical factor in their spiritual development. And I, I just want you to get rid of whatever is in your mind when you think of youth ministry. And I've, I've done there and I know there's a lot of things that go into mind with American youth ministry. My only question is this. Can you do that last paragraph? Con- or last sentence. Consistently explaining and modeling truth principles for young people. If you cannot then I would ask you, because this church is full of mature Christians, I would simply ask you, why not? And get going with that. But if you can, we need help. We would love to build a bigger youth program. I didn't want to, I didn't plan originally on making that the center of this sermon, but remember your Creator in your youth before and then in verses 2 through 7, he goes into further detail about what they need to remember him before. And that is before their bodies begin to fall apart. And, and that's a lot of reason some of you say, I just don't know if I can be a youth leader because your bodies are beginning to fall apart. And before death finds them. Verses 2 through 7 are a poem about getting older. Now one commentator, and I'll let you decide on this, the truth of this later. One commentator says this is one of the most beautiful poems written about old age that was ever written. Again, I'll let you decide. 
But in verses 2 through 7, we have an allegory of sorts that describes a house that is falling apart as a storm is approaching. The storm, of course, is, is death in verse 2. We see that darkness has just fallen and has just rained, but instead of clearing up, another storm is approaching, and this one is much more threatening. And as one gets older, rather than the clouds giving away to sunshine, it often seems like one storm leads to a next, all leading to the final storm cloud, which is the darkness of death. And as the storm approaches, the the house that lies in its wake looks on in dread. Verse 3 describes this household and it points to four different members of the household. First, it refers to the keepers of the house, which in that day were the male servants, those who, who guarded the house and kept the house and maintained the house. And as the storm approaches, they tremble in fear. Second are the strong men, which are the, the male owners, the landowners of the house, the heads of the house. And, and as the storm comes, they stoop or they bend over in worry. Then we come to the women, first the female servants, those who grind flour to make bread. And as the storm comes, most of them run away in fear. So those who are left stop grinding because there isn't any point anymore. They're not going to get enough bread made before the cloud comes. And they quit. And then finally, looking at the upstairs window, we see the lady of the house. The woman who is a woman of leisure and has nothing to do but but look out the window and watch the world work. And as the storm approaches, she draws the shades closed, not wanting to see what's about to take place. So we have men and women, owners and servants. The whole household is affected by this encroaching storm. Now you say, what does this have to do with old age? Well, each of these are a metaphor for a part of the body. The keepers of the house are are the arms. The arms that once protected you, but now they begin to tremble. The legs are the strong men and They are beginning to bend under the weight of years. The grinders, of course, the most clear connection are the teeth. And there are less and less of them every year. And some of them, the ones that are, the ones that are left just decide to stop working. It ain't worth it. The windows are your eyes. The eyes which become dimmed with cataracts and loss of vision. The poem begins, continues in verse 4. By referring to the doors that are shut, which could mean the mouth, most likely it means the ears. They hear less and less. They no longer hear the sound of grinding like they used to. Um, Michael Eaton, again, uh, says the grinding of grain must have been a common, cheerful indication that younger folks were going about their business, while the elderly found themselves increasingly shut off from the hum of daily life trapped inside and not able to do the things that they used to do. Daughters of, excuse me, daughters of song, and we'll come to some of these we're skipping later, refer to the vocal cords that are no longer able to work and talk and sing like they used to. In verse 5, we we have these things that are taking place outside of the home. The the almond tree is blossoming. blossoming. I thought I had these on here, but I don't. The almond tree is blossoming. If you've seen an almond tree blossom, which I haven't, So I took their word for it. It's a silvery gray color. So the hair is turning gray. The older you get, you become like a grasshopper who no longer has his his spring. Again, you can decide if this is a beautiful poem or not. Instead, he just drags himself along the ground. But it's not only the physical that begins to deteriorate, but mentally and emotionally things begin to go downhill as well. 
verse 5, you see that, no, that though they can't hear very well, they're awakened at the sound of a bird in the morning. They're no longer able to sleep in. There's a restlessness about life. They are fearful of heights and even of walking down the street because they're afraid they might fall. And desire, which could refer to sexual desire or could just mean desire in general, is no longer there. And all of it leads to death. Verse 6, we're, we're given a poem and four illustrations, four images, two pairs that go together, showing and describing death. First, the silver cord that holds the golden bowl. And in that golden bowl were, were candles. Again, the image of light is in the Bible used to refer to life. But when the cord snaps, the bowl, the silver and the gold, which are precious, but they both break and they come crashing to the ground and the light goes out. And then the second pair of images is a well, a cistern, where water was once drawn. Again, water is a symbol of one of the necessary things of life. But the pitcher or the bucket that was once brought up to bring water to the one who needed it, it now lays at the bottom of the well and the wheel of the pulley system is broken and the water is no longer able to be retrieved. Light is extinguished and water is out of reach. Death has come. Verse 7 just reiterates that. Dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Again, I'll let you decide if that's a beautiful or a depressing poem. Maybe some of you could start to feel different parts of your body ache as you heard those descriptions. But whether we like it or not, this is the way all of us must travel. The question is, will we remember our Creator before these things take place? This is the admonishment of the preacher. Don't wait. Remember Him before these things happen because they will. But here's the real beauty of this poem. Right in the middle of it, we're told why these things must take place. Why is this house falling apart? Why are, are, are things going downhill? Because man is going somewhere else. He's not staying in this life under the sun. He's not, he's not meant to live forever in this vain existence, but he is going to his eternal home. Even as mourners go about in the street, he is going to a better place. Sounds like Paul's words in 2 Corinthians where he says, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we know this, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This body is just a tent. And if you've stayed in a tent for a long period of time, you know eventually it ain't a pleasant experience. It begins to wear out. It begins to get moldy. You begin to get sick of the tent. The tent of our lives will wear out. We have a home, a a building made by God that will never wear out, that is awaiting us. And for those who know that, for those who remember their Creator before their tent starts to give way, that knowledge carries them through the wearing out process. Paul says this as well. He says, we know that we, we do not lose heart because we know that though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Because we remember our Creator, while our physical body is falling apart, we are renewed day by day. As I read that poem and thought about that, my mind went to the story of 
Billy Graham and, and Charles Templeton. I know you all know who Billy Graham is, and maybe some of you are familiar with Templeton. Charles or Chuck Templeton. And uh, when both of these men were young and both in their early 20s, they were both on the same path of life, the same path of ministry. In fact, when people, if you ask people at the time, they would have said it was Charles Templeton who was going to be the great evangelist. He was going to be the one that changed uh, the world for Christ. And these two, as you can see, were, were great friends. But there came a moment of crisis for each of them. And it happened about the same time. A, a moment when they began to doubt and to question God and His Word. And it's not a sin to doubt or a sin to question God. The question will be, what will we do with it? Where will we go with our doubt? And for Templeton, his doubt led him away from God. And away from God's Word. He said, I just cannot believe it anymore. And he tempted Billy to do the same. This was a real temptation for Billy Graham. He wrestled with this. And, and one day he went out into the woods and he placed his Bible on a tree stump. And again, this is Billy as a young man in his early 20s at a critical moment in his life. And he cries out to God and he says, God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the the philosophical and psychological questions that Charles and others are raising. And then Graham fell to his knees and the Holy Spirit moved in him as he said, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow my faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this to be your inspired word. Now this does not mean that Billy checked his brain at the door. But he realized there are some things in his finite mind he could not understand. But he chose to believe. And he chose to trust. And that moment, Graham would go on to say, a bridge was crossed. Not all of his questions were answered. Not all of his doubts were removed. But in the midst of them, he decided as a young man, he would remember his Creator. And we all know how Graham's life ended. The testimony of the reality of those words from 2 Corinthians, of the inner man growing stronger and stronger as the outer man fades away, proved true. He remained faithful to the end. But Templeton experience shows the reality of Ecclesiastes. Because as he got older, his body fell apart and eventually he developed Alzheimer's. He came to the conclusion that the things that come with old age, and particularly for him, especially Alzheimer's, was evidence that there was no such thing as a loving God. His last book that he wrote was called Farewell to God. If you want to see a picture of despair, read the introduction to Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, where he interviewed Templeton, and Templeton just broke down and cried. He said, I miss Jesus. Billy remembered his creator. Templeton decided that he could not believe that there was a creator. And that decision made all of the difference in their lives. Remember your creator in your youth. Remove and banish anxiety and trouble from seeping into the core of your life. And rejoice. Rejoice all the days that God has given you in this world under the sun. This is the way to live a life 
well lived. Let's pray. Oh God, you have given us such great truths and treasures in your word. But Father, the story of, of Billy Graham and Charles Templeton and the stories like that that are multiplied countless times throughout history remind us that these truths are not just abstract ideas found in a book, but they are realities. Just as Ecclesiastes has caused us not to be able to avoid and ignore the realities of the pain and the heartbreak and the meaninglessness of this world, Father, so here as we end, we are reminded of the great truth and treasure that we have in knowing You, in knowing that You are our Creator, that You made us, that You created us, and not only created us, but You sent Your Son to redeem us and rescue us and forgive us. And Father, may each of us submit to that idea that You are our Creator. Through the good times and the bad, you have made one as the other, Ecclesiastes says earlier, so we can trust you in the midst of all of them. Through our questions and and, and through our doubts, Father, we can look to you and look to your word and find hope and assurance. Father, may we be people who remember. May we be people who remove heartache and grief from the core of our being. Sometimes it takes a fight, God, to not allow the, the anxieties to seize hearts in our lives and cripple us. May we be people who remove those things. And Father, may we be people who rejoice. Because as we've sang, we have found the greatest treasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me invite you to stand. And let me send you out with this benediction, Paul's final words in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all. You may be dismissed. Go in peace.